hello. Welcome back to Startup Health Now. If this is your first time joining us, a quick primer. This is the podcast where we celebrate the most innovative entrepreneurs in health and the moonshots they're working to achieve. I'm Nicole Clark, Startup Health Senior Writer. You're in for a treat this episode. Today, I'm pleased to introduce you to two women whose ideas and visions about the future of health innovation carry colossal weight, Esther Dyson and Jane Metcalf. Dyson is the executive founder of Wellville, a 10-year nonprofit that started in 2014, ends in 2024, and has the goal of helping five small communities create a sustainable environment that fosters health. She's a Swiss-born American journalist, businesswoman, and an investor and commentator in the health tech startup space. At Startup Health, we're lucky to have her as an advisor, investor, and friend. Dyson has vast perspective across many industries, including space travel. Yep, the woman has trained to be a backup cosmonaut. But what Dyson is best known for is, shall we say, keeping it real. Her critiques of the investor, tech, and health worlds offer necessary counterpoints that keep the conversations and missions at a human level. She has a knack for translating macro ideas, ideas like, long-term equitable well-being for all, and to roadmaps for organizing societies for maximum health. Metcalf is the creator and original publisher of Wired Magazine, the so-called Rolling Stone for technology. She and her partner, Louis Rosetto, along with writers and leaders in the cyberpunk movement, declared a digital revolution in the 90s. Since then, they've offered dispatches from a future life lived. Through her work at Wired, Metcalf turned what was once cult into culture, And these days, she's at it again. As she says, she's all about revolution. And several years ago, she declared the next one, the Neobiological Revolution. At Neolife, Metcalf has created a platform for in-depth reporting and beautifully written stories about the people, companies, and ideas shaping our neobiological future. She's asking the questions we're all thinking, like, designer babies are here. What's the next edit? And... Would you eat CRISPR produce? I could go on about these two, but instead, I'll let you listen in on their discussion from the 2020 Startup Health Festival. It's Metcalf interviewing Dyson. But really, it sounds more like two friends who both happen to be brilliant talking about the big ideas shaping the future of humanity and their role in it. Enjoy. Did you guys see her jacket? Wait, stand up. She didn't dance all the way in without showing you that jacket, right? It's cool. Um, so this is... You're a, not usually known for your sartorial splendor, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a Regina Halliday jacket. Regina Halliday is an artist who is married to a guy who ultimately died. But I think, as in so many cases, the, the treatment was worse than the disease. So she now goes around and paints people's jackets after listening to their stories of their encounters with the healthcare system. And this this is an interesting one because she actually did it after I had a benign breast lump that was big enough it needed to be removed, but it, it it wasn't really that bad. Then two or three years later, I discovered, or... I was being scoped regularly because I had Barrett's esophagus, which I discovered because I was training in space, training to go into space, and they give you, you know, pretty full workovers. So I was being scoped every year, discovered I had cancer of the esophagus, and then the fun began. I actually have a 
piece about that called Second Opinion. The first guy wanted to take out my esophagus and pull up my stomach tissue to replace the esophagus. And this is the point at which I said, you know, I think, let's face it, I'm white and well off and privileged. And I know David Agus, Steve Jobs is cancer doctor, so maybe I should get a second opinion, even though that really just seems impolite. <laughs> I mean, it, it just felt... That's a really good you know, point. People are afraid to go around their doctor's yeah. back because they invest so much in the relationship and in the trust, and it's a, yeah. it's a vote of non-confidence, isn't it, to look for a second opinion? Anyway, then the insurance wouldn't cover the expensive operation. Sorry, they wouldn't cover the cheap operation at Memorial Sloan Kettering. They would copy the expensive one because that was who they, you know, that was one of their... <laughs> That was in the group of people they would pay for, which sort of shows, again, it wasn't even the money. It was yeah. the inertia around, well, these people are our partners and Memorial Sloan Kettering is not. Uh, and maybe there's a higher profit margin on the more expensive surgery? Well, no, because they were my insurance company. I mean, they actually would have had to pay for it. it it's like it makes absolutely no sense except that they would have had to change the rules and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so the irony is the second time around, the agony you see on my jacket was absolutely justified. <laughs> right. I think people have some godlike faith in our doctors and medical system until they engage with it. And then they understand what a, a, a torrid mess it really is. Yeah. So we've known each other a very long time. Um, I mean, I think we probably met in 1992. Not the 80s? 80s? Did we meet yeah. in the 80s? No, I didn't come to California when until did 91. You? Okay. So, I mean, did you know me during the Electric Word days? During Amsterdam? No. no, just okay. Or, sorry. And then we were on Reminiscing. The, <laughs> we were on the board of the Electron, Electronic Frontier Foundation yes. together. Um, and so we have, you know, 25, 26, 27 years of, uh, of shared history. Uh, in the tech space. Yeah, so we can um, just tell jokes, you know, like number 13 and you laugh. <laughs> right, exactly. Old story. Um, but what I'm curious about is, um, I mean, I think your breast uh, uh, biopsy um, was not that long ago, but you got interested in healthcare in what, 2004? What was your aha moment? Okay, so I was running my tech industry newsletter and running a conference and I went to Renaissance Weekend and they had this panel, like so many, that they have at this particular event with 13 speakers and three people in the audience. I was one of them. <laughs> and it was an amazing bunch of people, an ER doctor, a, a, a nurse who was the kindest lady in the world, a couple of hospital administrators, a radiologist, a cardiologist, I don't know what. And they all talked about how hard it was to do their jobs in the face of a healthcare system that was misaligned, bad incentives, whatever. And it was, it was so sad and they were so nice. And I thought, wow, you know, in my world, in the tech world, where, where are the VCs funding the startups with the solutions to these problems? Where are the new business models? Where, where's all the solutions? And I just thought, you know, this does need to change. So I started getting interested in healthcare, and that was interesting. 
The second thing that happened was I interviewed this guy called Charlie Silver. How many people know the website realage.com? Its, it's business model is selling vitamin supplements. Its clever idea is you take a little quiz not about your medical vitals, but about your behavior. Do you have a partner? Do you have a dog? How much do you sleep? And it gives you your real age versus your chronological age. And he ended up selling it to Hearst and then to care, share care or somebody. But what was really interesting was who he sold his first company to. Jiffy Lube. Who? Oil changes. Oh, wow. Juicy. And I thought, you know, okay. that's it. It's maintenance. <laughs> it's not <laughs> repair. Right. And we need to do a better job of maintenance. So Charlie Silver was my that's patron great. saint in some weird way. That's really great. Well, so what are the business models and um, disruption cycles in the tech industry that the healthcare industry needs to adopt? Well, there's a bunch. I mean, one, every time I talk to some startup and they say, we've got this great software and, you know, it will revolutionize the workflow or it will connect this or that. And I ask them, well, do you know about VARs? Anybody here know about VARs, V-A-R? So what it stands oh, for... Oh, come on, there's one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there's a few. It stands for value-added reseller. And everybody in tech knows you don't just put the software out. You, you sell it to somebody who buys it, but then you go in and train the people who are going to use it. And you connect it to the stuff that's already there. And you, you add all this value that finally makes this product worth something. So the product can be replicated by pushing a button and say copy, but the value is added by actually putting it into use in some real world. And so many people in the health tech world don't get that you need, you need to prepare the soil into which you plant this thing for it to achieve its value. So yesterday I interviewed two CEOs, uh, one from a company called New Eyes and another from a company called Cala Health. And in both cases, they are investing in their own distribution system, their own way of touching the patient, helping the patient understand how to use the technology and so forth, which is, you know, that's a, that's a heavy load. That's yeah. a big lift. And are they also investing in, I mean, what happens when the patient comes with their Cali Health thing to their doctor or their... Is well, so the question is scaling, right? Yeah, and, and so getting the healthcare system to accept whatever it is they're doing. And that's a long battle, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, but that is the question. I mean, it seems like startups have two choices, to either try and build it up themselves, which takes a lot of time and money, you know, or to partner with a big company, and then they lose that ability to get those instant feedback and innovation loops going. Right, and also... They, it, it can sort of get absorbed in right. the distribution channels systems. And dumbed down and lost. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, okay, so um, what is your quadrant chart? Oh, yes. So having discovered the importance of maintenance and, and in essence, creating health rather than chasing after it and trying to fix it when it's too late, I started something that's called Wellville, which very briefly, is a 10-year nonprofit project started in 2014, ends at the end of 2024. And the goal is, in five small communities, to actually help them 
create an environment that fosters health. And it, this is less about the healthcare system, more about school and childcare and prenatal coaching and a whole lot of mental health issues, helping to give people the resilience and the mental, the mental comfort so that they don't become addicted to drugs or food or alcohol or whatever. And so what we learned and what we finally realized, you know, every outfit needs a quadrant chart with four quadrants and of course the best one is the upper right hand corner. And what, what I discovered is that addiction is the essence both of short term thinking and you know, loss of perspective. All you want is this drug right now and Addiction is more about wanting than about satisfaction, because you never really, mm. that satisfaction never gets, never lasts. So it's inherently short term and, and way too focused on a single thing. The nonprofit organizations in our communities are addicted to short term grants. And the foundations help by offering short term grants and getting these little entities to compete with one another rather than to work together and to build some long-term solution. So the quadrant chart down here in the lower left is someone with an addiction lying in the road. Along comes a benevolent billionaire, gives him a thousand dollars. You know, and the reality is probably it goes to more drugs and changes nothing. So you have this short-term thing that's not a solution. The guy is benevolent but doesn't help. Then he goes off and wants to be a longevity billionaire, invests in how can he live forever. So he's thinking long-term, but all about himself. Then, with luck, he thinks about his grandkids and the world they're going to live in, and of course he's going to be there too. Maybe he should invest on behalf of everybody. Maybe he should try and even out some of the disparities in income and health care access and so forth. And so. Here is long-term equitable well-being, and that's what we're driving towards, whether it's changing individuals' behavior or the behavior of the agencies and institutions and care organizations in the communities we live in. So that's our quadrant chart. So how are you going to judge your success in 2024? And um, your brother doesn't think you're going to stop in 2024, just so you know. Pardon? Your brother doesn't think you're actually going to stop in 2024. No, well, but with luck, we will take what we have learned. Our goal is not to fix five communities. It's to help five communities build something long-term and then to explain to the world, if they did it, you can do that too. And by the way, if you're an institution that thinks long-term the way a government should, or a health care system should, start investing for the long-term. So fund prenatal and postnatal care. Pay care workers more so that the care that, so that child care actually cares for children rather than being child storage. <laughs> so health is about investing in the future. Health care is about fixing the past and we'll judge it by, you know, we want to look at the number of transitions to diabetes, the, the projected death rate, stuff like that. But what really matters is how many kids graduate from high school? How many people are not addicted? How many people are working in jobs that are meaningful? Do employers come into the community or are they leaving? Are the real estate agents happy? Those are 
Right. I mean, that's what creates health and long-term well-being. So speaking of long-term investments, um, I mean, you've been tracking artificial intelligence as long as I've known you. Yep. Uh, and so, For several winters. <laughs> sorry, several cycles, right? Yeah. Hype cycles, but also development cycles. Right. So um, we were talking earlier about uh, radiology and the impact of, uh, of AI uh, on that field. You know, what, how much of this has reached its potential? Where do you think we are on the... Um, on the scale, are we, have we made we're, it to zero yet? <laughs> are we, yeah, I mean, we're, we're right at the beginning. There's sort of a, a bunch of different use cases. There's syllable.ai is one company, and it's sort of natural language understanding. They make bots, and they solve one of the most intractable problems of the healthcare system, not of medicine, and that's scheduling and organizing. I mean, the system wastes so much money due to patients who don't show up appointments that get canceled, but the patient wasn't informed, so they do show up. Uh, and that's using pretty good technology to solve a really boring problem. At the other end, you have things like Ezra.ai, which is kind of a concierge service for MRIs that are not reimbursed, but that we hope our data will show that they should be, because they're much better in many cases for finding stuff and less invasive. Um, and then there's something, there's kind of what I consider fundamentally much more interesting, which is a company called Turbin.ai and a lot of others. A lot of what they call AI is just statistics and deep learning and pattern recognition. But then you get into things where you actually model the behavior of the molecules and say, based on this molecular structure, this is the kind of antibody that would be relevant or, you know, because of the way the protein folds and unfolds, this could go through the blood-brain barrier. And so you're actually understanding the world, not just recognizing this looks like that. So it's less of a black box and, and more of an actual understanding of how the molecules and chemistry works. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all really early and at the same time, you're going to hear more later about this, but you know, AI can replace a lot of what a doctor does. It's much harder to replace what a nurse does. Mm. And ultimately, there's a lot of talk about loneliness and social connection and so forth. And you know, I mean, in the end, I, people give you purpose. Bots don't. And there's something around human connection, whether it's with a nurse or with your peers that is what really matters right? and keeps you healthy. Right. Well, I think predicting um, disease could go a long way towards starting to transform our society. Well, so here's the challenge. I mean, I can, I can look at a third grade class. I can see some of the kids are already getting plump, and I can predict really bad stuff. Mm. The prediction is fine. Society needs to do something about it. And probably the most interesting thing that AI and big data can do is not predicting this kid's going to be sick, but actually giving us more robust information about the counterfactual. Because mm -hmm. if, if you don't have a counterfactual, then you can't figure out how much money you're going to save or how much time we have left. <laughs> yeah, I know, because there's um, one question that I really wanted to okay. get to, and we're out of time. And I know we're running late, but I'm going to ask it because nobody over there is answering. Um, so we saw what happened with 
unbridled development of technology, right? What's good for the internet is good for the yeah. world. Um, you know, we could see the same kind of uh, takeoff point here at, at the intersection of health yeah. and tech or bio and engineering or, or whatever. Um, you know, so the question is, when do we know we're still going in the right direction? When do we need to intervene? You know, how much? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this, we started out, the DNA is awesome. You know, people start things, they want to do good, they want to build something of value. And then their metabolism starts taking over, the revenue cycle, the investors' demands for exponential growth. And suddenly, instead of selling people what they need, you start selling them what you can get them to pay for. And you, from giving people power, you start manipulating them because that metabolism is demanding exponential growth. And you know, a nice profit is fine, but right. that's the danger. And right. I don't know whether it's moving from, again, fixing problems to doing the equivalent of cosmetic surgery on people's minds uh, creeps me out. Right. And those kinds of things will be possible. It's, it's a big, you know, what's the difference between fixing something that is broken and putting lipstick on something that doesn't really need it? Well, this is what I admire so much about what you're doing. I mean, you have this vast perspective, you know, over many industries and lots of time. And rather than focus at sort of the network level, you're actually down at the very human level. And you're translating all of this into, you know, what, how do we need to organize societies, you know, for maximum health? And I just, hats off to you. It's a huge undertaking. And I love the fact that you're going to lead the way. You've been at the forefront of so many things throughout your entire career. And, um, you know, if you can be the voice of reason and, and help people connect with, health in the community and then technology expanding that we'd all be better off well thank you and remember the quadrant chart <laughs> thank startup health is committed to keeping our finger on the pulse of health innovation more than that we invest in entrepreneurs who are committed to achieving health moonshots our growing army of health transformers is global it includes more than 315 companies from 25 countries to read more about the inspiring women and men in Startup Health, go to StartupHealth.com and click on content. Next week, we're back with an episode featuring a panel of leaders from Amazon and Microsoft alongside trailblazing nurses who are working on the front lines of the U.S. healthcare system. They call themselves entrepreneurs, and they're calling 2020 the year of the nurse. Tune in to hear why. Thanks for joining me on Startup Health Now. Until next time.